You're listening to a Discourse ZA production. I'm Brandon Williams, and we're here with The Small Print, and today our guest is David Ansara, who is the Chief Operating Officer for the Center of Risk Analysis. So to start off with, David, can you please introduce yourself the way you like to be introduced and just explain to people who you are, what you do, and why you do it? Well, great, Bronwyn. Thanks a lot for having me on the show. Uh, my name is David Ansara, and I'm a Chief Operating Officer of the Center for Risk Analysis. And essentially what we do is policy, political, and economic risk analysis. So we're a think tank. Most of us are based in Johannesburg, but we're increasingly uh, located all over South Africa. And what we do is we help our clients to navigate what is becoming an increasingly hostile and uncertain regulatory environment. Uh, we help to interpret the meaning of government policy and the impact that it'll have on our clients' businesses. So we have clients across the spectrum, so financial institutions, banks, uh, insurance companies. We have also uh, listed firms, but increasingly ordinary families, individuals, private consultants who value our insights and analysis. So primarily our, our main product is a weekly risk alert. So every Monday morning at 7 a.m., we release a, an update from the CRA team, which flags a couple of the, the most important risks in the environment today. So that's two pages, very succinct, 10 minute audio as well. And then we produce a number of ongoing research reports and analysis and online briefings as well. So uh, we had a briefing just this week uh, on the budget speech, which was presented on Wednesday. And uh, so we had about a hundred or so of our clients on that call. And so our clients look to us for, for guidance on how to navigate what is increasingly a tricky and uncertain terrain. Yeah, I think we play in quite similar space in that regard. But what we really wanted to have this conversation about today is what exactly is being indicated from the budget speech that's come out this week? What are the policy sort of signposts and signals that we should be taking notes of? And particularly those buried things. So from my perspective, I always like to try and kind of read between the lines rather than read on top of the lines, because superficially, I mean, it sounded like pretty good news for regular people and for businesses, you know, like lower tax rates for corporations and no tax increases for income taxes, et cetera. But if you sort of look under the hood a bit, there's a lot of more sort of sneaky and hidden taxes per se that are popping up, even if you just want to stick with the tax question, that are sort of indicating that we're having to find more creative ways to plug our fiscal deficit as it is growing. And of course, there's many sort of controversial views as to what we should do with that deficit, ignore it, leave it all alone, keep spending, hope for a better day, print some money, whatever the case may be. So anyway, what we hope to get through today is to talk through some of those issues, to firstly look at what are the things that still out for you that perhaps have not been spoken about within the sort of mainstream commentary on the budget as it has been presented to us this week. So if you have a comment there, let's kick off with that. Well, Bronwyn, I think the big picture is still quite concerning. And really what we saw last week was the continuation of a trajectory towards ever-growing deficits and debt. In terms of our public finances, the South African government is spending well beyond its means. And it is able to do so because of a unique combination of factors in the global environment. So South Africa is a small open economy that is very much exposed to the vicissitudes, the fluctuations of uh, the, global, uh, the global environment. All right, so, so I think the first thing to look at, and all of this of course takes place against the backdrop of COVID and the serious fallout effects of the pandemic, not just 
uh, in terms of the health effects, but also the public policy responses and the economic impact. Right, so the first is that South Africa continues on a very low uh, growth trajectory. And uh, last year, if you had to look at, uh, look at economic growth, so COVID was just shy of negative 8%. That was what 2020 uh, represented. So that's a huge contraction in the economy. But if you go back essentially over the last 10 years, you'll see that South Africa hasn't really been able to escape more than 2% economic growth. Bear in mind that our reproductive population rate, our replacement rate, is about 1.5, 1.6%. So we're not even, you need to grow beyond that in order to see an improvement in welfare and standards of living of, of ordinary South Africans. So the, the National Treasury is projecting that growth will be around 3.5% uh, in 2021, and then gradually uh, slowing down 2.2%, 1.5%. And that sounds like quite good news on its face, north of 3%, but there's this base effect of uh, the, the huge cratering of the economy last year. So that's just trying to recover some of the losses from last year. So ultimately we have uh, quite a, a stagnant economy and that low growth uh, is, is a real problem. We're underperforming against our emerging market peers. So notwithstanding the impact of COVID, that we had a serious problem of low growth in South Africa. Um, so then maybe we want to talk about uh, some of the headline figures. So essentially the, the, the government uh, collected, was projected to collect in the coming financial year, 1.5 trillion Rand. And so that's uh, quite a lot, but if you compare that to their projected spending, that's about 2 trillion Rand. And so there's a, a half a trillion rand, 500 billion rand deficit that we're looking at, which is, <laughs> it's a big hole indeed. And, uh, you know, that's about just shy of 15%. Um, so, uh, and, you know, that's, so yeah, 14% was, uh, was in 2020, looking uh, ahead to the next, next year, they want to try and get that deficit down to below 10%. Um, but bear in mind that National Treasury tends to be quite optimistic on its projections. So whenever it's talking about the growth outlook, the uh, deficit projections tends to be uh, quite, uh, quite ambitious. And when you look back on those projections, you see that Treasury, for example, on economic growth tends to be off by around five, uh, 50%, margin of 50% or so. Um, so if they say growth will be 2%, then it's more likely it's going to be 1%. If they say 4%, it's more likely going to be 2%. And getting back to the, to the deficit. So, I mean, this is a, a yawning gap, a big, uh, a big difference between revenues and expenditure. And that is the largest, essentially, that it has been since most of these records began being kept in the early 20th century. So since around the time of the First World War, we've never had a bigger deficit. That's includes the second world war that includes yeah that includes the uh, the fallout from uh, from the rubicon speech in the 1980s and the divestment campaigns that were happening there during the late apartheid period and even going into the the transition which was a hugely tumultuous time for the country and for the public finances so we pretty much have never seen a, a larger deficit than this 
That's fantastic news, but not really. Uh, it's, a, it's an exciting challenge, but I think that a, a lot of the commentary that has come out of this budget is that all things considered, the budget was quite good. That, you know, we had to, there has to be, the spending can't really be stopped. There's such a sort of political expectation. There's so many people that require assistance after we have been through a pandemic and the job losses have been quite extraordinary. There's so many more people that are now requiring some sort of welfare assistance in order to survive. But all things considered, it seemed to be uh, a rather tame budget. In fact, I've seen some of the scores that have come out and most people have sort of rated it in the sort of around a six out of 10 on many of the analysts that have looked at this. Do you agree with that? Do you think that it is, is a sensible budget or are we missing some really big tricks in this particular piece of paper? Is there something that they could have done better given the cards that they have been dealt over this year? And if so, what would you say that are? Okay, well, I would rank the budget speech quite low. I'll give it about a two. And, Go for it. You know, <laughs> Just say uh, what's out there. <laughs> Be contrarian. Yeah, I mean, that's not because uh, I, I'm just wanting to go against the grain, but I think that there are some serious underlying fundamentals that are, that are quite worrying. And one of the, the big concerns that I have is South Africa's growing dependency on debt. And uh, so in the, the speech, the projection for the next financial year is the debt to GDP ratio of basically 82%, uh, rising to about 87% by the end of the medium-term expenditure framework, which is basically the next uh, three financial years. And bear in mind that only a couple of years ago in the 2019 budget, did we pass the 60% threshold. And already at the time, that was an extraordinary development. And uh, that growing dependency on debt, I think represents a longer-term risk for South Africa. So what I saw the, the budget speech of last week being was a kind of a holding pattern. And also I think, and we'll turn now to the, to the international backdrop, which I think is, mm. is pretty significant. South Africa is, is able to finance its deficit through borrowing because there is an abundance of liquidity in global markets searching for yield. So uh, there's still a very high appetite for South African government bonds, SAGBs, uh, the 10-year government bond still has uh, quite high yields. Where is that demand coming from, though, before you, well, before you move on then, at the moment? Um, the demand, well, I think basically yields are so low in the developed world that uh, pension funds, uh, private equity firms, whoever's banks financing, uh, looking, for, looking for, for growth, they're having to turn to what are maybe seen as more risky investments elsewhere because interest rates are so low, um, there's just a, a kind of been a flood of, uh, of liquidity injected into capital markets by central banks. Um, so, you know, the, and, and there's just nowhere for all this abundant capital uh, to go. It still begs um, so, the question, why South Africa, though, when there are so many other options, not just in the emerging market, but also emerging asset classes? I mean, this is this is where people are looking for yield at the moment. So perhaps we can sort of put a pin in that. But what is the, the competitive mm -hmm. case for lending money or investing on an equity basis into South Africa at the moment? Because we're not living in a vacuum. We are part of a competitive global environment that we've got to compete for capital. It's not like guaranteed to, to fall into our bank accounts and into our infrastructure mm. holes. <laughs> well, well, that's a, that's a very good point. Uh, so, they, and there are 
serious concerns being raised around South Africa's ability to pay back its debt, but not to the extent that foreign investors view it as likely to default on its debt obligations. So, you know, we are seen as a as a safer bet than, say, Argentina, for example, which has had multiple uh, sovereign debt defaults in its history, which essentially locks you out of capital markets. Uh, We saw uh, Mozambique having its own uh, essentially fiscal uh, crunch as well. And they're now finding very difficult to raise up. So South Africa is still a diversified market, still has fairly liquid domestic pools of debt as well. So a lot of that debt is also RAND denominated. Um, but increasingly, we're seeing more dollar-denominated debt. And you know, there's okay. a perception that the, the South African Reserve Bank is fairly well-managed. It has uh, regulatory checks and balances, good relationships with the commercial banks, which also in their own way play a kind of counter-regulatory role. Um, you know, so c- certain fundamentals in terms of South African market are still quite sound. The RAND itself is quite a volatile uh, currency. So it's, it's quite a good uh, currency in which to speculate upon. Um, you know, so there are some, some positive drivers there that, that mean that foreign investors are still able to, to kind of take a bet on South Africa, even though it has such serious uh, problems with governance, with corruption, as we saw with the PPE scandal during mm. the height of the pandemic um, and significant issues with its state-owned enterprises, particularly ESCOM. So even with these huge headwinds, uh, investors are still willing to take a bet. But that doesn't mean that that will last forever. And yeah. what could it's happen... an opportunity, but a threat too. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, so, so this is almost buying us time. It's, uh, and, and we saw also with global commodities markets that local mining firms have had a boost to their coffers. They've been able to generate uh, more income. Uh, and that could be for a variety of factors, like some of the stimulus that we've been seeing in developed markets might be going into uh, infrastructure development and so on. Um, and there's perhaps pent up demand for commodities. And so yeah. if you look back at the minister's speech in October, uh, he, his deficit projection was actually a lot larger. And in terms of our revenue, we actually collected about 100 billion rands more revenue than we were projecting in October. So, so that was good news, and that kind of uh, enabled us to a, a little bit of wiggle room, but not particularly much. It's not a not a huge dent in that that giant fiscus, uh, that that giant uh, deficit. Yeah, that, no, absolutely. It's not plagued all of those holes. But I'm um, coming back to my earlier question. There is to say that what what should they have done differently with the budgets? Because uh, was there fats to cut in terms of expenditure, and if so, where? And is there are there reasonable places to find more sources of finance to fill that hole? Because that's the, those are the two ways you can fill a hole. You can either just ignore it, pretend it's not there, or you have to fill it with something, or you have to reduce your, your expenditure. So what were the tricks perhaps that could have been played that haven't been looked at with enough seriousness? And, and why is that? I mean, obviously there's huge political will ac- across a lot of the spending commitments that we have. So I don't know how feasible it is to actually cut a lot of those entitlements, but perhaps there are places we could look to cut fat or other places we could look for sources of finance. What would you have done differently? What would you suggest that should have been looked at? Well, remember that a budget speech is also a political exercise. So it's not just an accountant who stands up and says, well, this is how we're balancing the books. There's also political considerations that go into how spending is allocated. And 
the minister was very quick to point out that this is not an austerity budget and seemed to use that word austerity in a bit of a pejorative sense, saying we don't want to go down the same path that Greece did. But if you unpack this idea of austere public finances, this is, I don't think, such a bad thing. Being living within your means, uh, being prudent about what you choose to spend on. And Tito Mboweni indicated that over the next three years, he wants to reduce spending by about 269 billion rand. And, you know, that he put at the door of the, the, um, the Minister of Public Service, saying that we're negotiating uh, with public sector unions to, to try and uh, reduce spending. But, you know, he can't enforce that himself, Tito Mboweni. He is reliant on on other role players to essentially trim down the size of the public service. So we also have a very heavy component of manage managers within the civil service who, who earn a lot more than ordinary civil servants. And we have approximately 2 million people in South Africa who in some capacity work for the state. Bear in mind that we only have about 15 million people who actually have a formal job in South Africa. So, so that's a significant, it's just over an eighth of of the entire workforce works for the state. So a lot of this borrowing that we spoke about, this half a trillion rand deficit is going into financing government consumption, essentially. These yeah. are not value generating activities. Um, so, and you know, you can make a, an argument to say, well, public welfare payments that you, uh, that you indicated, that's, that's an important source of income for people who live on the margins of our society who don't have access to employment opportunities, they're dependent on the state. And that, that is a significant quantum of money. But I think more concerning is this civil service that is just ballooning and has been growing since essentially uh, the Zuma years. And yeah. so I think that that is where the politics comes in because uh, the, the, the minister, uh, when he starts to, to suggest, well, maybe we need to turn off the, the money taps that's when you're going to get pushback from public sector unions that are within the tripartite alliance. So tripartite alliance, Kasatu, ANC, and of course the South African Communist Party. And Mr. Ramaphosa is heavily reliant on those alliance partners who essentially propelled him to power. And he and has, has indicated as such, his primary concern is maintaining the internal unity and stability of the, uh, the alliance. And so when you turn off those money taps, you essentially start to compromise the cadre deployment system, which is essentially based on uh, being able to deploy cadres of the movement to institutions of the state, whether it's a state-owned enterprise or a government department, and use that power of patronage uh, to, as leverage uh, to, to be able to achieve political ends. So what we saw was signaling from the finance minister, yes, we want to reduce spending, but I don't think he has the power or, or even the will to really take on the unions. He seems to be isolated within the cabinet, regularly countermanded by his cabinet colleagues and the president himself. So this is where the economics and the politics are starting to clash. 
Yeah, absolutely. But I'm glad you mentioned that because both the things we mentioned, whether you're talking about welfare entitlements or about sort of salary bills, which is really what we're referring to here, those could be considered consumption rather than you know productive investments. And it's one thing taking on debt in order to try and kickstart some sort of money multiplier effect. It's quite another to use debt for your basic living expenses, as we all know. But how do you get out of this hole? How do you reverse this at this point? Because there really is very little appetite for anyone being told that their, their income they're getting at the end of the month is going to decline. The only real way you can get buy-in to any sort of, not to use the word austerity, but to any sorts of restrictions on the increasing of debt to fund these sort of consumption-based entitlements and salary packages is to put some sort of other promise or carrot onto the table. And are we seeing any of that? Are we seeing any actual projects that could be generating some sort of multiplier effect? Has the budget allocated enough to actual investment, to actually fixing the root cause of the problems? The fact is we do have a too much of a bloated public sector, public service. We have too many people dependent on the state and not enough people that are properly independent that are generating income that is actually you know new tax not just sort of recycled tax that's going through the salaries from the private sector to the public sector and back again are we seeing any sort of hope coming out of there from this particular budget are we seeing any projects that you think could result in a more sort of developmental state in some sort of perhaps south african equivalents of the green new deals that are being thrown about in both Europe and America. And if they are, or do you think these projects are looking at the right sort of areas or perhaps is this just throwing more money down the hole? Because unfortunately all too often, even well-intended developmental projects do tend to turn into expensive white elements. Like, like I'm sure we all can remember what happened with the arms deal, for example, and the many aborted attempts at nuclear power plants, for example. So do you have any comment on that, on the more developmental projects proposed and if there's adequate or perhaps injudiciously allocated attempts at, at allocation in this particular budget? Okay, well, there's a, there's a lot going on there. But if you recall in the beginning of our discussion, we started by talking about economic growth. And essentially, the only way you can get out of this problem is by growing your way out. Uh, and how do you do that? Well, you need to create the right conditions for growth. Uh, so the remedy that I would recommend is to implement growth enhancing reforms. And the president and some of his cabinet are very keen to speak the language of reform, but when it comes to the action, we don't, we don't see very much. And what are those reforms and what kind of costs and trade-offs do they involve? Um, and I'm afraid those trade-offs are going to have to be borne by somebody at some point. And it involves winners and losers. Uh, and sometimes the losers are not gonna be very happy about being on the losing end. So what are some of those reforms? Well, the first I would say is to reform the labor market. So we currently have a very tightly controlled uh, labor market with a lot of protections for, for existing workers. But bear in mind that uh, just a couple of weeks ago, we saw that the unemployment rate, the narrow definition of unemployment has gone beyond 32%. So uh, that means that we have significant amount of people without a job, if you look at the youth, uh, their unemployment rate is is more than half. So, Upwards of 60%, uh, right? I mean, it's exactly. quite extraordinary. And that's a critical phase in your career. You need to be building skills. You need to be uh, getting on, on the ladder. It and has lifelong implications. 
Yeah, the, the, exactly. your first and job, your first paycheck compounds over the course of your life. So if you miss that boat, as they call it, the sort of the, the missed platform generation in Japan that relates back to their, you know, ongoing recession that sort of started in the late 1970s, early 80s. Well, that generation is never caught up financially with, with the other cohorts. So it's a huge problem. I mean, you can't, you can't really avoid that, but do carry on. I'm interrupting you. No, Bronwyn, you're absolutely right. And um, that has long consequences for the rest of your career. And during the national development plan process, which was led at the time by Trevor Manuel, when they released the report, they said, essentially, if you don't get a job within the first seven years of matriculating, essentially, you're never going to get a job, you're going to be locked out of the, the labor market. And as you yourself have indicated on, on some of the videos and interviews that I've watched with you and that we've had on our own channel on the CRA channel, you know, you've warned about some of the headwinds that are going to be facing the labor market, like uh, the increased rise in automation, uh, the, the ability of highly skilled people to take advantage of economic opportunities within this new digital economy. But if you don't have, uh, if you don't have skills, you're essentially kind of thrust to the sidelines. Um, and so what we have to do is craft policy for the labor market that we have, not the labor market that we wished we had. And we do have some significant advantages. We have quite a young population. Um, people are desperate for work. Uh, you may have seen the, the long queues, uh, videos of people lining up uh, for an internship, for example. Um, and so we need to be able to give people access to opportunities to create their own prosperity, to, uh, to forge their own future, if you will. And currently the Labor Relations Act Basic Conditions of Employment Act, the National Minimum Wage Act, all of these essentially serve to lock out those millions of people, around 10 million people who, who are economically active but not employed. And it keeps them locked out. And that means that you're favoring existing workers. And here again, the politics comes in because the trade unions, which are now mostly comprised of civil servants, uh, as mining and manufacturing have contracted their uh, their contribution to Kasatu has, has also uh, dwindled. And so now you have a conflict of interest because civil servants who are unionized, they push aggressively for a lot of these labor laws uh, from within the tripartite alliance. And uh, they ostensibly are doing this for pro-poor reasons to protect interests of their workers. But what you don't see is the opportunity cost, the millions of people who are outside of the labor market who are being locked out and who would otherwise have had a fair shot at, at a job. So reforming the labor market, absolutely critical. And what perhaps could we be doing to actually stimulate actual new growth itself? So has there been adequate interest and an application with regards to creating a supporting environment to actually start businesses themselves. Because we all know what happened last year, a lot of businesses were put out of business due to COVID lockdown regulations and all the rest of it. What is being put into place in order to re-catalyze that whole industry? What has been, what, what is holding us back in terms of both regulation and also budget allocation there? Because it's one thing to talk about labor policy, but if there are no jobs out there for those laborers to go and actually do, people have to find some other way to earn an income. And that should definitely be the goal to create more independent citizens and less citizens that are dependent on government for whatever reason. So what do you think could have been done or what has been done and what was not done enough when it came to this particular budgets in that regard and to actually increasing and growing the economy itself from a business perspective mm. there. 
Well, look, I mean, the finance minister himself uh, a couple of years ago, I think it was late 2019, put forward a policy document which had a range of uh, quite useful suggestions uh, for policy reform, many of which I think were quite good. But again, ran up against the, the hard reality of the political pushback. So uh, we might be a bit unfair on the minister for criticizing him too strongly uh, for last week's budget speech, because some of, this, some of these policy interventions are, are sort of beyond his control. Uh, he did make an emphasis on infrastructure development and said that over the medium term, the government will be spending north of about 700 billion rand on that. And I saw this with a bit of uh, skepticism because I, I don't think that infrastructure is a panacea for low growth. I think infrastructure is certainly very important and our infrastructure is under strain. But currently, I think we have more of a software problem than a hardware problem. And the software is policies and, and so on. Um, and, you know, you can't also with infrastructure, you can't spend your way out of the crisis. Uh, you have to at some point uh, say that, well, these investments are going to lead to long run effects. Um, I would say that uh, also something to keep an eye on, just whilst we're talking about this infrastructure push, is that there will be amendments the minister announced to Regulation 28 of the Pension Funds Act. Uh, which would, in his words, enable uh, pension funds and, and other funds managers to uh, essentially uh, invest more in this infrastructure push. He'd make it easier, I believe, were the words that we used. <laughs> yes. Uh, to, and, and, but now this all takes place against the backdrop of a big debate around prescribed assets, in, which is uh, on, a, on the table, off the table, on the table again, off the table again. And uh, that is something that we've warned our clients about is officially prescribed assets off the table, but there could be regulatory amendments such as what is being proposed. And you should look out for this this week, apparently more details will be announced where you impose these uh, portfolio allocation proportions on fund yeah. managers and say a certain proportion of your fund has to be invested in these assets. Which we already have, you're driving. so people know. Yeah, I mean, it's not like this is not doesn't exist. It's not like there isn't a, a precedent set there. There already are allocations that you're mm. allowed to and not allowed to in order to achieve your your tax bonus, you know, behavioral points at the end of every year. So, <laughs> yeah. Yes, no, you're right. Um, but just be be aware that this could be a way of of introducing more stringent uh, requirements and prescription through the back door, um, and we've been certainly been focusing a lot on that. Um, so. What else can what else can you do? Well, you, you know, for years we've been hearing about that there will be more spectrum allocation in terms of our, our bandwidth capacity, and that's still not being implemented. Um, you know, so the appetite that this government has for reform is very limited, uh, even within a narrow uh, set of parameters. So I think it's just important to bear that in mind. A lot of our clients come to us and say, "Well, we've heard that." The president is a reformer and that he's frustrated in his reform efforts but we don't actually view it that way we don't actually see the president and his colleagues as having that that kind of aggressive appetite to really disrupt the status quo it's a status quo bias uh, that favors existing policies and protecting the the interests of of uh, the party and uh, those elements <laughs> that are so associated with it yeah 
Exactly, but I suppose the question around infrastructure is not too far removed from the questions around state-owned enterprises, because we do know that they have, of course, been bugbears across many people's minds and very many different segments of South African society are looking at the value that our SOEs are delivering in exchange for what they are costing us. So obviously you alluded to the fact that perhaps um, investing in infrastructure isn't the, shouldn't be the highest priority right now, but the electricity question definitely is one that it can't be ignored. And there's definitely an argument to be made that we should probably be spending more money fixing that, or at least looking at new sorts of policies that allow us to sort of open up the ability for municipalities, individuals to generate their own electricity there. But what are your views on what this budget had to say about the future funding and future returns because state-owned enterprises are supposed to be assets they're not supposed to be liabilities going forward do you have any confidence as to firstly that the budgets that have been tabled will be stuck to and secondly as to whether that were these are prudent decisions that are being made or is there there room to improve our budget score from the two you gave it earlier by looking at some of the ways that we play with those SOEs yeah, so I think actually it's a very good point that you've raised there, Bronwyn. I mean, if you cast your eye over the, the budget speech, you'll see very little mention of the state-owned enterprises and, and ESCOM in particular. And uh, certainly, uh, I don't envy uh, Andre Dureta for the position that he's in. And really, the situation in ESCOM is the culmination of years of infrastructure neglect, poor governance, and poor financial management, and the South African economy and participants, ordinary businesses in the economy are bearing the brunt of that. So if we don't resolve that energy situation, we're really looking at a hard ceiling on South Africa's growth of about one or 2%. Um, given uh, particularly our reliance on the mining industry, on um, you know, manufacturing relies very heavily on, on constant electricity supply you know, if you don't resolve that problem, then you're not going to see the levels of, of growth that are required. And certainly, uh, I think a liberalization of energy generation is a, is a good place to start. But bear it's in mind that... Investing. <laughs> yes, yeah. For a and, start, if, if and, budget is the problem. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and so if you can push that risk onto other private providers and, you know, let them... Uh, take that risk and, and, and pursue the profit motive. I think that would go a long way. But I think a wholesale unbundling of ESCOM at this point, you know, also just bear in mind the governance problems that have existed there. And uh, whilst we're certainly in favor of uh, privatization in a general sense, you, know, you also want to avoid a kind of post-Soviet Union type scenario where assets are sold off in a fire sale and to politically connected individuals. And, you know, so I don't, I don't think necessarily a vertically integrated utility is, is a bad thing, but clearly isn't working at the moment. And I think crowding in private generation capacity, I think would be good for security of supply. But remember also not all renewable energy uh, initiatives like windmills and solar farms and, and those sorts of things can give you base load capacity. Yeah. Um, so on the margins, it helps you to, to get over some of those critical shortages maybe. Um, and it's better than uh, burning uh, diesel by the Diesel by the lake generators, fall. the sound of the suburbs, yes. <laughs> yeah, um, and that's usually wasteful and inefficient. 
but you don't want to, I, I believe, and I'm not an energy expert, but I don't think you should be uh, betting the house on a uh, 400-year-old windmill technology. And uh, so, you know, where does, where does, what choices are available? Well, I think the liberalization of supply is a good place to start. But remember that as more electricity comes on stream, that's going to put price pressure on, on ESCOM. Um, which is in this, they call a utility death spiral, where they're unable to maintain and service their infrastructure, means they have to keep pushing rates higher. But then as rates go higher, it incentivizes users to go off the grid, um, and which compounds the problems uh, further. So uh, yeah, so I don't have any easy answers for Mr. Dorator and, and the government on that front. But certainly, it's 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 a it's a huge risk and a huge challenge uh, that needs to be resolved urgently. What about our other expensive luxury toys? I mean, if we are at the point where we're trying to look behind the back of the sofa for a bit of spare change, there, there are definitely things such as SAA and the SABC that, that spring to mind as places that might not solve all our problems, but could go a long way to paying, a, paying at least a portion of our public sector bill or giving a few more people a few grants. The, the priorities there are, are definitely debatable. Don't necessarily want to take a view on that myself right now, but maybe you've got a few thoughts there as to what are the, what are the other perhaps vanity projects, the luxury purchases that an economy such as ours that is running on definitely not a champagne budget might have to look to or could look to to cut a bit of bit of the fat and just do a little bit to reduce the size of the, the hole that we find ourselves in now. Well, you mentioned South African Airways, and I think that's a good place to start. So late last year, the airline was given a, a bailout of around 10 billion rand. <laughs> well, it's about the equivalent of, of our whole uh, COVID uh, financial allocation in this budget. So it's uh, pretty significant. Yes, so it's significant, yes. Yeah, and, and Bronwyn, you know, I think if you think of uh, the priorities of spending, uh, it's a, a national airline is not a strategic asset. Uh, it's there are plenty of private airlines that could service South Africa as a, as a long-haul destination. Um, there are, uh, I think, also a lot of, there's a lot of waste and inefficiency that goes into the airline. This is not a well-managed state-owned airline like, say, the Ethiopian, Ethiopian Airways. We're not in a particular um, good so, place geographically to be a, a global hub either. We, we're a node, not a, not a sort of, <laughs> or not, not a node, we're a spoke definitely in the sort of global wheel. <laughs> so we don't, we don't have Ethiopia's positioning. So I'm not sure why people would want to do a detour to South Africa flying between Asia and America, for example. <laughs> but that's, that's, a, yeah, that's, that's a side a point. point. Carry on. <laughs> yeah, so, and who are the people who use an airline? It's essentially middle-class people. Uh, politicians flying from Joburg to Cape Town to go and sit in Parliament, and uh, you have to ask: Is that is that the most urgent spending priority? I think that's just about about national pride and ego, which is not really something we can afford at the moment. 
Are there any other vanity projects that we should be keeping an eye on, things that, that could become expensive quite quickly? Some of the things that I've been looking at that sound quite good on paper, but don't necessarily translate into the sort of returns that we're wanting to, are sort of ideas being floated by the economists like Mariana Mazzucato, who's looking, who's encouraging governments to spend more in shiny green new deals and very sort of elaborate projects and space projects and aspirational goals, which do sound good because I do definitely believe that we should have something to look forward to. We need to have hope. We need to have some sort of progress and a plan. That's what gets people excited. It's hard to get excited about, you know, increasing ESCOM bills for the, for the rest of our lives. It's much easier to get people excited about a new space program or a smart city around Lanseria. But at the same time, some of these things can devolve into vanity projects quite quickly. And perhaps it is worth touching on what those sort of smart city projects are, because they sound great on paper, they look very impressive, but are they going to return into real returns for South Africa at large? Or are they just another way to spend more money and look good on paper? Do you have any thoughts around the, the shiny new deals and development state project moonshots, as they call them these days? Well, I would just ask who pays for that. So when you talk about that the government must invest in this project, essentially they're using taxpayer money in order to do that. And you know, the problem is that the, the governments also have their own incentives their own agendas. Uh, we've also seen the, the management of those funds. It's a lot of wastage, a lot of corruption that creeps into these projects. So if you look at Medupi and Kusile, long uh, timeframes, which uh, you know the deadlines have been missed multiple times, cost overruns. Um, you know the state is often not the best stewards of these highly innovative projects. I would say the state should stick to its knitting focus on the basics of infrastructure like roads and telecommunications and, and try and uh, ease the burden on itself by pushing a lot of these projects onto the, the private sector. Um, so smart cities in Lanseria, frankly, that's just a ridiculous assertion by the president in his State of the Nation address this year and a couple of years ago. And I don't think that that if you consider the state of many of our of our cities at the moment, um, we need to get back to basics. We need to make sure that the current cities that we have flushing toilets and schools maybe start there before we start building smart cities for the privileged mm. few. That's, but that's that's just an opinion. However, I'm going to push back a slight bit on you because I, I suppose I'm supposed to keep this interesting. And sort of going back to that whole idea of the development state, there is a valid argument to be made that a lot of private money or in the or public sector money that has accumulated from taxes is used really to fund private interests. And that's where the argument comes from, where, where advocates of moonshots and development state type projects are suggesting if the government is sponsoring private research that is being turned into benefit in private hands, surely in the state should, and the public should get some benefit out of the investments that it has made in things like R&D, in things like subsidies for, particularly for new industries and grants and all of these exciting things. So there is, there's a trade, there's a trade off there. And I suppose the question is, is if we want to make things more fair, and we want to make sure that we're not using public funds to finance private profits, either we need to stop financing private interests, or we need to start making sure the private interests are also sharing their awards of that back with their funders, which is in essentially the taxpayer at large. So I'm not sure how you would approach such conversations and such arguments, because these are issues that are becoming more popular in debate, and they are asking questions of fairness and living in a very unequal society like South Africa. Mm -hmm. We have to be able to address those and to address them quite objectively. Do you have a view on that at all? 
Yeah, look, so I think when you talk about development state models, uh, I'm quite critical of this idea of a model because a model implies that you can just impose this uh, one system onto another and you will have a replication of all of the successes. So South Africa is not South Korea. So South Korea uh, has a variety of different factors that have enabled it to use some of these so-called developmental uh, interventions to you know, like industrial protections, uh, heavy infrastructure, infrastructure investment, and so on. And look, each country has its own different dynamics and developmental trajectories. But you must also, I think, on, in this developmental state debate, you know, there, there often are uh, inefficiencies, misallocations of capital that you don't see. So when, I don't know, when a government such as the American government lands uh, a rocket ship on the moon, uh, that there's a, a kind of a, 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 um, a spectacular effect to that. Uh, it looks very impressive. There's all sorts of secondary technologies that- Makes everyone happy, it's great that. nation builder. <laughs> yeah, and uh, it's, it's, it, it, there's a kind of a, a reference bias, if you will, because it's such a spectacular kind of event. Um, but you, what you don't see is all the, the white elephant projects, the, uh, the roads to nowhere, the stadia that are built in the middle of the bush that doesn't have any people to fill uh, for a soccer game. Um, well, if you live in Cape you know, Town, so, you have a daily reminder, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. And I mean, 2010 was a big infrastructure push, and we saw a lot of corruption there from uh, the state and from private construction industry. And I think one of the big problems, and I think you alluded to it in your comment, was that we kind of have almost like a, a corporatist compact in South Africa. We have concentration in a few key industries. And telecoms is a very good example, essentially a duopoly there. And uh, those incumbents benefit from government protection, right? Regulatory modes, are... yes. Uh, a government mandated monopoly, isn't that fantastic? Nice work if you can get it, right? <laughs> Exactly. And those, those uh, firms had first mover advantage, but yeah, the government regulators are the ones digging those, those moats. I, I really like that metaphor. And uh, that means that new entrants to that market find it very difficult to challenge, to challenge that. And some people might say, well, look, this is one of the negative side effects of capitalism. Look how unfair it is that these that these two big players look under the, the hood. Market. Look well, at I who's would... propping up the monopoly, right? So who's who's allowing that exactly. spectrum and that? Yeah, exactly. There's, there's many arguments for that, but that does lead to the, the sort of arguments of saying that those sort of companies that are granted monopoly rights that are given public public goods for private profits probably should be looking to share those profits with the with the other the what they would have been competitors that are now excluded from that mm. due to the actions of public sector actors, for example. There's definitely arguments to be made there. But I suppose it would be disingenuous to have this conversation without backtracking right to the beginning and going back to the people who say, deficit, what deficit, who cares? We can just print the money. So these are things that would have raised many more eyebrows even a year ago, but we've become, as with many restrictions on our freedoms and many other things that we've just allowed to sort of become normalized over the last year, 
the idea of who cares about deficits when we have a monopoly over our own currency. And even as you were saying earlier, most of our debt is still locally held. We, we Although it is increasing to have more and more sort of foreign denominated debt, if it is locally held, do we have to worry about it at all? Or can we just go the route that Stephanie Kelton and her fans suggest and say, we can just print it, don't worry about it. We've got a monopoly on our own currency. And the deficit doesn't matter because a government budget does not work the same way that a private house budget works. How do you respond to those sorts of calls and pushes towards more quantitative easing, more modern monetary type theory policies as a, as a get out of jail free card from this mess that we find ourselves in? If it's too difficult to cut spending, it's too difficult to collect more tax. Why would we want to turn down this, this amazing free pass that, that is being proposed from a political and from an economic perspective? Well, I think it might seem to be a free pass now. The, the problem is when you cast yourself ahead into the future, and that could be many years to come, there will be some kind of reckoning about who pays this debt. And we can also look to the north of our own border, north of the Limpopo, at a very calamitous situation where it was monetary easing where uh, the, the central bank of Zimbabwe basically uh, printed money because of political uh, pressure to do so. And that led to runaway inflation, which essentially destroyed the wealth and savings of an entire generation of people. So what we're doing now, in my view, and I think the, in the fullness of time, the modern monetary theorists will be uh, proved to have indulged in quite a high degree of wishful thinking is that we're essentially deferring the, the payment of that debt to future generations. And I think that's not going to necessarily present itself immediately in the short term. It's going to have huge effects on our economy and our, and our societies uh, more broadly in the future. Um, and also just, I think one of the, the arguments that's made, particularly uh, from the United States monetary theorists, modern monetary theorists, is that, well, look, this isn't, this monetary printing is not having as big an impact on inflation. Where's so we the inflation, kind of as they say? <laughs> yeah, you get that question yeah, pushback all the time. But but have you looked, right? <laughs> Maybe it's, exactly. yeah, like the that, future, it's not evenly point. distributed. If you look at look at certain pockets, inflation is there. The things that, that count, actually, in the US. So if you look at housing, education, food, which is not even included in their, in their CPI bundles, energy, those things mm. are inflating. And the stock market, too. So it just seems like perhaps inflation question it's, it's more of a man a measurement error than a than a lack thereof in that particular argument but i would agree with you i think that yeah. in general there are no free lunches in this world but we can pass the check through both space and time so you mentioned that a lot of these costs do compound that it's a can kicking exercise that it puts the bill into future generations but it's also a bit of a pass the buck to your neighbors in other words to countries that don't have the luxury of monetary sovereignty, that don't get to engage in the same sort of policies, mm. they, they start to see those costs a lot quicker. And we know this as South Africans. So, you know, if the dollar is, there's more dollars, but it still has the same value, but you don't own any dollars, you are instantaneously poorer in comparison, in real terms, even if not in, in monetary terms. So, yeah, I think I always, we have to always understand that like energy, money is not free it's just traded there's always a winner and a loser on the side of any one of those those coins and but, who are um, the winners to that of that dramatic increase let me do that again and who wins in terms of that dramatic increase in asset inflation those are the holders of capital uh, so rich. this 
Exactly. Those are people who already uh, have extensive, uh, extensive wealth and that is being essentially ballooned. And that, I mean, I, I don't think there's anything wrong per se with inequality if that's the outcome of a competitive uh, process. Innovators need to be rewarded for taking risks and adding new value. But if you just happen to have access to uh, your father's uh, trust fund, and you've seen the value of that ballooning through no effort of your own because of the injection of, of stimulus by the central bank, I think that that is going to create a lot of second order effects uh, in the economy and society. Compounding inequality. And, but we've already uh, seen this. We've seen this through what's happened over the last year with COVID when governments have engaged in vast money printing programs in order to fulfill entitlement obligations and to essentially bribe people to stay home and to, to behave <laughs> you know, when they, their livelihoods have been taken away. And we've seen it. The rich have got vastly richer and the poor have got a lot poorer. Even the same trends played out here in South Africa in that South African households taken at an average, and we all know an average is, is far from being the norm, have actually increased in value over the last year. But at the same time, we've had millions of people fall out of the middle class and into poverty. And we've had a tax base that's shrunk quite dramatically. The, it's a tale of mm. two stories. So there's a, there's a lot to say to say to back up that, that observation that increase in liquidity tends to favor those who are able to invest and not just spend whatever is is bound into their hands at the end of every month. But I suppose the, the real question that we have to end off with on today is that having looked at the budget speech and having, having talked through quite a few of the issues around it, the, the costs, the, the debt, the problems, the political constraints and opportunities, what is it from your perspective as someone that does work for a center of risk analysis that should have a view as to where we are headed next and what the risks are, what are the big opportunities and what are the big threats? And even if you just want to pick on one, one of each that we need to look out for over the course of the next year, what, what is unraveling? What is going wrong? What is going to result from all of this that we have covered? And what conversely, and I think we started off talking about some of that, what are those opportunities that we can do to try and prevent some of those potential disasters and unravelings coming to being? Well, I think one of the opportunities here is perhaps a bit of a counter-cyclical one to say, well, whilst there is a lot of uncertainty, there's also space for people to do new and innovative things. Um, and I think it's about recognizing opportunities when they're there. And I think also not necessarily buying into the mainstream narratives uh, of government or established business or the, the kind of World Economic Forum set to say, well, how can I take steps to protect my wealth, to find alternative sources of, of growth? Um, and uh, I think, for example, this recent boon in sorry, this recent boom in, uh, in Bitcoin is very instructive. Uh, people clearly are looking for alternative stores of value. They're not trusting the US dollar or other established currencies as much as they were in the past. That explains why you've had this flood of people uh, moving towards crypto assets. And time will tell whether uh, this is a longer term, more sustainable, uh, durable store of value. But when you're eroding and undermining the underlying value of, of the US dollar, um, you can see what's propelling people towards these, uh, these alternative stores of value. 
So being not buying into fads, not going along with uh, Ponzi schemes, but saying, well, what can I do with, with my money, with my energy, my time that can, that can uh, open up and unlock some of these other opportunities. And part of that is being mindful of, of the risks as well and diversifying your income streams and not necessarily being dependent on one particular uh, jurisdiction uh, that you have options, uh, that you have uh, different sources of income, uh, different ways of accessing the information and skills that you need, uh, which I think is one of the huge opportunities is uh, that the internet has created is uh, that know-how and knowledge has now been dramatically democratized. There's some negative externalities as well to the internet around uh, misinformation and, 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 other, and, and other things, but it's never been a better time to, to educate yourself and to, to learn the skills that, that you need to operate in a, in a very uh, a chaotic world. So, so that will be my, my parting shot. But it's important, I think, at these moments to look at the big picture. And I think the budget speech offers you that opportunity to say, okay, well, what are the, like, the big drivers here? Uh, is it sustainable to be having a half a trillion rand deficit over the longer term? Uh, is that, how does that actually play out? And just ask yourself those basic questions. I don't think you need to be uh, an economist in order to, to figure out how that might uh, resolve. But to come back to the, the threat part, is this train going to come off the, the physical rails? Are we headed towards an IMF bailout of some sort to some sort of third party management of our mismanagement of our own markets? Or are we going to be able to rectify ourselves? What, if you were a betting man, what would you, what would you say we need to prepare for? What is the, the worst case scenario here? I'm not convinced it's the, the same worst case scenario as you mentioned Zimbabwe. I don't think we headed in quite the same direction, but what are your views? What do you, what do you think here? What is the worst case scenario? Well, I think the worst case scenario would be if there's some kind of exogenous shock where something changes in the global economy, kind of similar to what we saw with COVID or the global financial crisis, that basically washes up on our shores. And you could also see, for example, a reversal of some of the uh, low interest rates or some kind of financial contraction globally. That means that South Africa becomes a less attractive destination and, and investors pull out. And then you could see pressures mounting for monetary easing or printing from uh, in South Africa. So we've already seen this uh, the Deputy Finance Minister, David Masondo, uh, openly calling for uh, monetary easing from the central bank. Uh, luckily, there are quite a few technocrats and, and institutional guards, guardrails uh, against that in the South African Reserve Bank. But I think that would be, be a serious red flag if we start to uh, print money. And we're not the US dollar, we're the South African rand with its, with its own unique dynamics. And you could see a rapid depreciation of the rand as a result of that. And I mentioned Argentina earlier, uh, you know, that, that uh, hyperinflation and uh, debt defaults, that, that really destroyed the livelihoods of many Argentinians and, uh, you know, made the prospects for, for growth in that country very difficult. And this was an economy that was at one point the sixth largest economy in the world at the beginning of the 20th century. So you can go backwards. You know, growth is not inevitable. Uh, with the wrong policies, you can really uh, destroy and undermine growth. And we need to protect the, uh, what we've built in South Africa and, and, uh, and, and not uh, let ourselves be taken in by too many uh, fancy theories from uh, economists in the developed world who, 
sound uh, nice on paper. If it's too good yeah, to be true. Operate in their own <laughs> environments and, uh, and won't bear the downside of their policy prescriptions in our country. So, you know, I think that that's very important when we look at these ideas that are coming from abroad. It's like, well, actually, are they suited to the conditions that we find ourselves here in South Africa? Without, without having our very own dollars to play with. But I do think that, the, that perhaps the Argentina comparison is more accurate as to where we are than perhaps the, the more sort of dramatic cases of terms of like your Venezuelas and Zimbabwe's as to the sort of issues that we're facing and the sort of depths of our capital markets and everything that we have. But I suppose I just, before we, before we close this off, I suppose there's one thing I could push back on just from our own points of view, because although you make absolute sense saying that the opportunity here is to actually hedge against South Africa, I think that there is a counter argument to be made and something that I've thought about quite a lot myself lately in that if you are seeing problems ahead, we've kind of got two choices, individuals. You can either hedge against it and play the entirely selfish, sensible card to say, let's, let's back into crypto, let's be part of that capital flight. But at the same time, as soon as you do that, you're also actually betting against the country, but not only are you just betting against it, you're also increasing the odds of economic collapse if enough people take that advice, which is perfectly sound advice for the individual at a collective scale, that does accelerate a lot of the breakdowns that you have been speaking about. It creates bigger deficits down the line. It creates less mm. investments in the economy. And I know that's not a comfortable conversation to have, but I think it's, it's something that's worth thinking about for people that are listening to this call, that we kind of have two choices. We can either invest in the future that we want, or we can hedge against the future that we don't want, or we can do a bit of both. But whatever we do, however we spend our money, we're essentially betting on the future, but we're also not just betting on it, we're also building it. We're also investing in a particular world that we are helping to make materialize come forward. So I suppose that's a challenge to policymakers and to South African citizens listening to this call. And if you disagree with me, David, please go ahead and disagree with me. Otherwise, I'm going to hand over to you for any closing shots that you have before, before we end the session today. Well, look, I think that that's a very good point that you make. And I think that there is a lot of capital in South Africa. If you look at the, the cash reserves of many South African corporates, they're reluctant to invest, but there's a reason why they're reluctant to invest. It's because they're uncertain about the environment in which they're operating. So I totally agree with you. Uh, economic growth and risk are inherently linked and you have to be able to absorb a certain amount of risk and you know, if you if you do nothing, uh, then you're guaranteed to to not make returns, not to uh, not to enjoy and reap the benefits of of your investments. But you know, if you had a hundred million rand, Ronan, what would you what would you do with it in this environment? Would you invest it in ESCOM or or South African government bonds or? Or would you invest? I might in, buy some property uh, in a coastal in town. I would love it. I'd probably probably hedge my bets geographically as well as through through asset class. Yeah. But I'd like to think that I wouldn't I wouldn't cash all my chips against the country that I live in. I, I, I'd like to think mm -hmm. that I'm that I wouldn't. I can't say that I definitely wouldn't. But I suppose it's a challenge. I'm not saying it's easy at all. But we have to think these things through. That we that we become part of the whatever the future is. It's part of our actions too. Mm -hmm. It's not 
entirely dependent on the policymakers as much as they do tend to make things more difficult for us and to make our choices that much harder. But of course, in times of chaos and, and in particularly chaotic markets, it's actually quite a great environment for, for your more cowboyish sorts of entrepreneurs too, because you know we all know fortunes are made in downturns, but they're also made in weak states. So I mean, once again, it's a challenge put out there. How much risk are you prepared to take on and how much are you prepared to invest in fixing yeah. it so and there are a lot of what they call asymmetric bets out there mm. that uh, if they turn out well on the upside then you, you can make huge returns but there were, you also want to avoid the asymmetric downside that a catastrophic mm. risk that will kind of catastrophic risk. so yeah exactly so that's what Nassim Nicholas Taleb often talks about is these kind of fat tail risks and the absorptive barrier you don't want to you need to be able to come back on Monday morning and still play the game. Um, yes. And, you know, I think that that's really important, you know, so I think hedging and diversification is, doesn't necessarily have to be a conservative do nothing approach. It's just about saying, well, I'm still going to act, but I'm also going to protect for the downside. And there are a lot of downside risks. So I hope that, that, uh, that helps to answer your question. It's not that you must just shrink up into your little shell and, and hope that the risks go away. You need to be able no. to confront them head on. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, David. And that's, that's it from us today. Thanks very much, Bonin. It was great to be on the show.